Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast Christmas Edition. And how about that music? Seriously unreal. Oh, makes me so happy. Um, So, hey, a couple of things as we get started. First, many thanks and big shout-outs to my friend Jeff Shepard. Jeff has been giving his time to work on the audio of the Changing Faith podcast. And when he heard the first podcast, I said to him, how do you think it sounded? And his response was, "Mm, it wasn't bad, which is a really nice way of saying it it really needs some work. And so Jeff has been giving his time to do that work. So if it sounds better, if if the levels and all those things that I have no clue about sound better, um, thank Jeff. So Jeff, sincere thank you for giving time to work on the Changing Faith podcast. Second, as we move closer to Christmas and New Year, uh, I'm going to take some time off like I do every year. And so what that means for us is that the next episode will not drop until Tuesday, January 9, 2018. We are already at the end of 2017. So that's only about three plus weeks away. But before that, we still have today the Changing Faith Podcast Christmas edition. And the title of it is, God is Here? And I'm recording this episode because when it comes to Christmas, for many, it really is, like for them, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And everything about it, it is great. They can't wait for it. They, they build up to this season every year. But for many others, for many of us, this can also prove to be the most difficult season of the year. Because there's something about Christmas that regardless of what emotion it is, Christmas has the power to amplify our emotions. It turns the volume up on however we're feeling. And so you have some people who say, no, this is the greatest time every year. And these are the people who are out buying Christmas decorations at Target the Tuesday after Labor Day. They're the kind of people who are upbeat the whole season. They don't miss a Christmas party for the life of them. They have more Christmas sweaters than there are days in the Advent season. They love Christmas music and start playing it sometime in October. They know every single lyric to every single song. I still don't even know the lyrics to Jingle Bell Rock, but somehow these people have memorized every lyric to every song. And I have to admit, I'm not that extreme, but I do love the Advent, the Christmas season. Uh, My family and I, we have a tradition where every day or every, every Friday after Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving, we go and we get a Christmas tree. And when we bring it back home, that's the first time we play Christmas music, because any time before Thanksgiving, let me just say this, any, any Christmas music before Thanksgiving is wrong and it's terrible. And yes, I'm one of those people. I'm very legalistic about this. And so we turn on the Christmas music, we get the tree set up, we decorate the tree. And every year that night after the tree is up and the lights and the, 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 the meal and the music and introducing Advent, everything just seems to be a little bit quieter and cozier. And I find myself during Christmas season moving a little slower, even in the midst of what can feel like a chaotic season. Um, I want snow every Christmas morning. I love taking time off. Um, I love spending time with friends and family. Every Christmas Eve, 
my wife and I invite uh, our closest friends over and we, we eat together and we finish the evening watching the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And if you've never seen that movie, you need to figure out a way to watch it this Christmas season because at the end of that film every year when Harry toasts his brother and he says to George Bailey, the richest man in Bedford Falls, I cry. Something in me wells up and I'm sitting with my closest friends and I realize that these are the people in my life who make me rich. It's just, this is Christmas. This is like the beauty of it, the nostalgia of it. But but then Christmas also has the power to evoke other kinds of emotions, doesn't it? Every year I encounter people who just want this season to be done and over with as quickly as possible. Something about it, whether it's the songs, the get-togethers, the music, the wrapping paper, the trees, the lights, the snow, it's it somehow is connected to or, or shines a light on wounds and pain and disillusionment. And somehow this season uh, uh, that is deep joy for so many has the power to be one of deep sadness for so many others. And so today, I'd like to offer some thoughts really for all of us no matter how we experience Christmas, if we experience it as the best thing ever, or if we experience it as the worst season that cannot end soon enough. In the midst of this season, I want us to consider together a word that often comes up. And I think this one word can speak to all of us, no matter where we find ourselves as we're listening together today. And what I want to do is I want to give some background to this word, and then I want to reflect on how this word can give both joy and comfort for us today. And the word of which I speak is the word Emmanuel, or Emmanuel, depending on how you wish to pronounce it. And this word comes from the Hebrew, and it's two words pushed together. And it's the word Imanu, which means with us, and El, which means God. So it literally means, if you take it, straight through, with us God, or as we say, God with us. It's a way of saying God is here. And the idea was connected to Christmas thanks to the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew begins his Gospel by talking about this idea of Emmanuel, and he's applying it to the birth of Jesus, but what he's referencing actually has nothing to do with Christmas at all. Matthew's reference of Emmanuel is from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah spoke this word to a king who was in deep trouble. And the king to whom Isaiah spoke was a king whose name was Ahaz. Now, history tells us that Ahaz was a very cunning politician, but he was not... the He was one of the worst human beings, actually, to ever assume the throne in Israel. One of the things that we know about Ahaz is that he worshipped a god who they called Molech. And part of worshipping Molech uh, included child sacrifice, among other things. So so this is is the king that Ahaz is speaking to, talking about Emmanuel, talking about God is here. And Isaiah is speaking to the king because Ahaz is under siege from two nations. 
And so in this moment that Isaiah is speaking to him about God is here, um, he's experiencing the worst of, of siege warfare. Now, siege warfare in today's world, I mean, it's, we don't do it anymore. Um, but understand, in, in the context of Isaiah and Ahaz, in the ancient Near Eastern world, siege warfare was brutal. Um, you would have an army surround your city. And oftentimes, the army would actually build what they would call a siege wall. So they build a wall around the city. So you are walled into your city, and then there's an army outside that builds another wall to make sure no one can get in or out of your city. And the idea was, was basic. We'll hold you in there long enough where you will either thirst to death, starve to death, or you will surrender. And when you surrender, there's a really good chance that we're going to go in and we're going to slaughter all of you because we've been sitting out here for months waiting for you to, to surrender. And we're tired and we're agitated and we're impatient. And so you have all of this buildup from the army um, on the outside. And know that, that a siege warfare, it wasn't a passive endeavor. It was actually a very skilled military practice and it, it took more than just an army to conquer a city. You see, oftentimes what would happen is that in addition to the military personnel that were there, generals would amass a workforce and they would figure out how to basically make the siege move more quickly. They would do this by building siege ramps. Oftentimes they would do this by taking clumps of dirt or buckets of dirt and building a hill up to the, the city wall so that they would be able to breach the city wall. They would, they would hew battering rams, like, just like you see in the movies, these huge, massive wooden poles. They'd go cut down trees, and they would, they would put some sort of metal on the end of it, and they would ram that into the gate in hopes of getting past the gate. They would, they would build siege towers so they could begin firing into the city. And you, you have to begin wondering, you're inside the city, you're not able to leave, which means food and supplies and water is limited. History tells us what happened to those within cities who experienced sieges. After a time when water would run out, these people were drinking dirty water. They were drinking sometimes their own urine. Um, when food would run out and they had no more food left, the old and the young would be those who would die first. And history tells us that there are people who experienced sieges that would feed on the corpses of loved ones to avoid starvation. And the whole time this is happening, you're, you're, knowing, you're hearing people build siege ramps. You're hearing the battering of the gates with the battering rams, and you're waiting only to be killed. You know that your future holds pain for you. So just imagine what it's like for people inside that city. I mean, you know, it's just a matter of time before they make it in. And, and you had terror in every single day that you woke up. So for, for people on the inside, like King Ahaz, every day is filled with reports on how much food was left or how little food was left or how much water is left or how many people have died or maybe it's a report on how much closer the armies who laid siege to your city are to getting 
over the wall or how much longer the gates are going to hold up. Day after day after day after day after night after night, you hear them building towers. You see the ramp get a little bit closer as each bucket full of dirt is dumped out, making it closer to the top of your wall. You hear the bashing of the gates with the battering ram. You're sitting around going at any second, this is going to get worse. Your present circumstance is filled with anxiety and worry. And the only certainty you have about your future is that it's going to hurt, that it's going to be filled with pain. And it's into this situation, Isaiah shows up and he says to King Ahaz, hey, God will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a child and you will call him Emmanuel. Meaning there's going to be something Ahaz that you can point to that will indicate God is here and that something is a child. Now there's all kinds of questions about who that child was and what Isaiah was talking about and who the virgin is and Isaiah's and and Ahaz's context. But, But the message The message that Isaiah is sending is simple. Ahaz, God is here. Ahaz, God is with you. Now, if you're Ahaz and your city has been laid siege from two military groups, from two nations, and someone shows up and says, hey man, God is here. (laughs) You're like, what? Really, are, are you kidding me? Do you not see what's happening outside? Have you not heard the most, re- the most recent reports on the number of people who are dying or how little food we have left? God is here, really, in the middle of a siege. God is here in the midst of a crisis. Have you looked around, Isaiah? I, I mean, if I were a Ahaz and someone came up to me and said, hey man, I just want you to know, God is here. When all of this is swirling around me, I reckon I'd look at him and say, really, God is here? Where is he exactly? Isaiah, how detached or ignorant are you of reality? You clearly have no clue what is going on. And I wonder if it's possible that here at the end of 2017, as we approach the Christmas holiday and we hear the word Emmanuel and we hear God is here, is it possible that some of us feel the same exact way? That we live day after day and night after night and, and, and we're just consumed with anxiety and worry that, that we look to our future and the only thing that feels certain is there's going to be more pains in more wounds, that everything feels like it's falling apart. Moments when disappointment and anxiety and betrayal, those are the things that consume our present circumstances. And we hear Emmanuel, and it almost feels like it's mocking us. And the only response, if we're honest, is God is here? Really? Well, then where is he? If God is here, why doesn't he show up? And we sit in the middle of this Christmas season, a season that amplifies the things that we feel and those words, God is here, sound more like a question than anything. 
years ago, my wife and I went through what we affectionately refer to in our life as our two years of hell. And I won't go into all of the details, but it felt like there was not a place in our life in relationship that was untouched by pain and by disappointment and by questions and all sorts, all sorts of things going on. And so we went through this entire year. It was 2005. And the year was filled with stress. I was 28 years old. I was living off my retirement, which is not because I had a huge retirement and could retire. It was because we were flat broke. And my wife was working weekends to try and make ends meet. I worked during the week. And so we barely ever saw each other. Um, my daughter was, my middle daughter was born earlier that year. And when she was born, it was like a high risk birth. I mean, there was just, everything was just stressed. I ended up in the hospital with heart problems because I couldn't, my body was like shutting down. And all of this is happening from January, 2005, all the way through, we finally get to the Christmas season. And my wife, of course, had to work overnight Christmas Eve. So I wake up, I, my, my son at that point was a little bit over two years old. We have a newborn. My wife shows up really, really early in the morning. She crawls in the bed and she's like, I just, I need to sleep at least until noon. Totally understandable. So I go downstairs on Christmas morning and I've never felt such intense loneliness like I did that morning. My son is, wants to watch TV. So I put the movie, um, The Polar Express on, which has this unbelievable majestic score that oftentimes comes into the movie. My, my, my newborn, I get her up, I feed her, I put her back for her morning nap. So I'm downstairs by myself, it's snowing out. It was really cloudy, that kind of cloudy that makes everything outside look a little bit blue. And the snow's coming down. My son's watching TV, watching the Polar Express. I'm doing dishes. And as I'm doing dishes, I'm just going through the whole year in my head. And I just feel the emotion starting like just under my chest, like starting to crawl its way up into my neck and into my shoulders and I'm doing dishes, and then the, the music from Polar Express builds up, and I lose it. I lose it. I'm doing dishes on Christmas morning wearing flannel pants with a two-year-old watching Polar Express, and my tears are falling into the dishwater. And I remember thinking to myself in this moment, this is the worst Christmas ever. And if you had come to me at that point and said, oh, no, Michael, God is here, I would have said, God is here? Where is he exactly? Just a few weeks ago, uh, my friend told me about his father, who earlier this year was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and eight weeks later, they had to bury him. Eight weeks, two months from diagnosis to the funeral. And as we were talking about Christmas and what we were gonna do this year, he, he like had this deep, deep emotion, talked about like, well, I'm, I'm gonna go home and be with my mom. This is, our, this is our first Christmas without my dad. And there's a sense when, when you hear that, you go, God is here? Maybe for those of you who are listening, you're estranged from a loved one 
And when it comes to Christmas, you have all of these memories of what life was like before there was a fallout in your relationship. And yet now you're in a place where you're going to celebrate another Christmas and you know there's not going to be a phone call. There's not going to be a card. There's a break in the relationship and somehow Christmas shines a light on that. I spoke to a woman recently whose son has just lost to drug addiction. And he's been in and out of homelessness and only really shows up when he needs something, which usually is some sort of favor so that he can continue in his addiction. And we were sitting together not long ago. And she said, I don't want Christmas Day to come around because I know my son won't be there. And so I'm going to sit at our dinner table and I'm going to have this deep ache inside wondering Where's my son? Is he okay? How much longer, God, before sobriety visits him? God is here? Have you ever had those moments in the Christmas season where you hear Emmanuel and you go, no, I'm sorry. Um, Because if God was here, things wouldn't be like this. And we may wonder... Why would Matthew connect this word to Isaiah? Like, why would Matthew connect this word that so many use as like this celebration? Like, God is here in the midst of this. Why would he connect it to such a dark, difficult thing for the history of Israel? What we need to remember, and maybe what can even be helpful for us who are in this season of Christmas this year in 2017 with an ache inside, it might be helpful to remember that Matthew's connection of Emmanuel, spoken by the prophet Isaiah in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances, made total and complete sense. Because Matthew is connecting this story in Isaiah to the birth of Jesus. And and he speaks about Jesus being born in a time when the boot of the Roman Empire was firmly placed on the neck of the people of Israel. You see, we can't forget that Rome was a global military superpower, and they had conquered most of the then-known world, including Israel. And when they would conquer a nation, they would come in, and they'd put a sword to your neck, and they would say, you either have to say, Hail, Caesar is Lord, or we're going to cut your throat. And it's no surprise that many people said, Hail Caesar is Lord. But the people of Israel were defiant. And they said, no, we're not going to say that. Judea, as the province was called by the Romans, was one of the most hostile provinces to the Roman Empire because of their dedication to believing God is here. And so when you oppose an empire, they kill you. More specifically, when you oppose the Roman Empire, what they would do to those in their midst who were not submitting or bowing the knee to Caesar, well, they'd they'd crucify you. And this is what happened to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jewish people. They were crucified by the Romans for their convictions and for their refusal to bow the knee to Caesar. This is the context. This is the world into which Jesus is born. There's a massive gap between rich and poor. The rich are exploiting the poor. The rich are oppressing the poor. This is why when you read the Song of Mary that we call the Magnificat, 
she's praising God saying like this child's going to bring some rulers down from their thrones. There was an outcry. There was an ache. There was an oppression going on. This is the context into which Jesus was born. The current circumstances for the people in Israel of Jewish faith in Jesus's day were filled with pain and anxiety and worry, and there was no hope in sight. There was a longing, but every day just reminded them that this oppression would continue. And I can only imagine how many people in that time and in that day and age would say, God God is here? Really? Okay, where is he exactly? And maybe that's the point that Matthew is trying to make. That in the midst of our worst moments, our biggest hurts, our deepest wounds, we need to hear over and over, God is here. God is here. God is here. God is here because he isn't far from any one of us. Whether it's during the siege that Ahaz experienced or in the midst of the occupation of the Roman Empire over the nation of Israel or washing dishes on Christmas morning while Polar Express plays in the background or wondering where your drug-addicted son is at Christmas or not knowing what life's going to be like without a father whose life slipped away in a matter of eight weeks. God is here. You see, these words, when they sound like they're mocking us, when they sound like a taunt, it's met with a question, isn't it? Like, God is here? But if we let it, these words can also be for us a source of comfort. God is here. And here's why I say that. There's one other time in the Gospel of Matthew where the idea of Emmanuel or God being with us or God is here appears. And it's actually at the bitter end of Matthew's Gospel. We learn that Jesus has been crucified and buried and resurrected. And he, he says to his disciples, hey, I'm going to meet up with you. And one of my favorite details of Jesus meeting up with the disciples in Matthew 28 is it says, he shows up, the disciples are there, and some worshiped. Well, of course they did. The dude raised from the dead. But then it says, and some doubted. And Jesus doesn't sit there and go, why are you doubting? He just goes with it. And whether they're worshiping or whether they're doubting, his last words, I mean, the phrase, the sentence with which the gospel of Matthew concludes is Jesus saying, I am with you always, even to the very end. Matthew's gospel begins with, God is here. Matthew's gospel ends with, God is here. And mind you, these words at the end of Matthew's gospel from the mouth of Jesus are not coming from someone who stands on the sidelines and winces at our pain. This is not a God who is far off. This is not words from someone who doesn't get it. This is not someone who looks at what you're going through and goes, oh, it'll, it'll get better. It's not someone who's like, hey, buck up, camper. Rub some dirt on it. You'll be fine. 
These words are spoken by the crucified one who identified with us in our wounds and in our shame and in our pain and in our disappointment. One who is right there in the thick of things and his last words are Emmanuel. I am with you. God is here. I spent a lot of time healing from the season in 2004 and 2005, the two years of hell. And uh, it's the season that culminated with me crying into the dishwater. And in the midst of that season, I really believed God was nowhere. Because, that, I mean, that's how it felt. Like my favorite verse in that season was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Just the sense of like, God, you're not here. And yet, as I walked through healing and moved into better space, I was able to look back and I am able to look back and see, actually, God was there. See, God was there in my friend Bill who called me almost every morning just to get me out of bed, which was a major chore for me because I was so depressed. God was there in my friend Jason, who would sit with me and listen to me gush. And sometimes he'd listen to me rage and sometimes he'd see me cry. Sometimes I'd ask questions and he would sit there and remind me over and over, Michael, you are loved. Michael, your heart is good. You see, God was there in my oldest sister, whose name is Michelle, who would come and babysit on the one night that my wife and I had together during the week. And she would do it for free. And every time as we were leaving, she would slip me some cash on the way out the door so we could enjoy a night out and not have to worry about money. You see, God was there in my friend Jim, in my friend Jeff, and Lisa, and Dan, and Faith, and Doug, and all of those who came around my family and who walked with us in the midst of our pain and our struggle and in their words of comfort and the tears they cried with us and the times they sat with me without judgment and held my pain with deep empathy and compassion, in all those moments, their words and their actions were saying, God is here. God is here. And they said that in a way that, that goes beyond explanation in a way that told me that God's tears fell into that dishwater that Christmas morning right next to mine. And so here we are now. We're hours away from celebrating another Christmas. And people are all over the place, somewhere between joy and sorrow, breathing the winter air once again, awaiting the birth of Jesus. And so what do we do with all of this? Well, let me conclude with a few thoughts. First, let me, let me talk to my friends who, like maybe this is for you. This is like the best Christmas season yet. I, I have a friend, I have several friends actually. They're celebrating their first Christmas with their new little one. And I am thrilled for you if that is the case. But what if, what if the joy and the hope you feel 
can be a presence in the life of someone who needs to feel and needs to know deep in their bones, God is here. What would it look like this Christmas for you to be the Christ presence for somebody else? Maybe it's just setting an extra place at your Christmas table for someone who would otherwise be alone. Maybe it's something as simple as like foregoing one extra gift or maybe even spending a little bit less on gifts to give to those who can't afford anything. Maybe it's going to one or two or three or how many, (laughs) who knows how many. Maybe it's going to less parties so that you can slow down and that you can see, you can see your family. You can see your friends. You can look them in the eye and sit alongside someone who needs you to be with them, to sit with them in their grief. Maybe this is what we ought to keep in mind every time we catch another glimpse of tinsel and lights and wrapping paper and get another invitation to another party. That maybe if this is for us a great Christmas season, rather than rush through the season, maybe we should recognize that we can embody the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that this Advent season is all about. That in our presence with others who find themselves asking, God is here? That we can actually become those words of comfort and our lives can be a reply to their question and we can say, yes, God is here. And maybe you're in this season and your heart is aching. And maybe like my friend who's celebrating for the first time without a parent. Maybe you're entering the season having lost a loved one. Maybe you identify with this mom who talked about not having her son over for Christmas. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Whatever it is, maybe you're here and you're listening and this is a hard, hard season for you. And all, all I can say All I can tell you because of what I've experienced is that God is here. He may not be visible at the moment. Even hearing me say that you might just want to turn this thing off and think this, this, you, it feels like God is mocking me. I can hear the battering ram against the gates, but God is here. And, and my, my hope is that if we can open ourselves to that even just a little bit, that, that maybe, maybe this season hope might be a little bit more victorious over cynicism. And, and maybe peace will make some headway on healing division. And that joy will take steps toward overcoming the despair that resides in our hearts, and that love, well, love will just drive fear a little bit further away from our souls. And together, we might find ourselves in the days to come saying with more conviction than ever, God is here.
not in a way that denies the pain, but in a way where we see clearly in the Christ child a God who does not avoid suffering, but enters into it as a vulnerable, newborn baby. And with that declares the promise, I will be with you even to the very end. And so my hope is is that we will be able to both hear and hold those words of comfort and that we may actually be in the way we live our lives that we might embody those words of comfort. And wherever you are as we approach Christmas, may you know, may you see, may you believe God is here. And so may you have the merriest of Christmases and may you have a happy new year. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.